You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm very well. I trust our global audience as well. And uh, I look forward to the exciting world of talking about electricity, gas and decarbonisation. And decarbonisation and why it is so important too, because we've got a fascinating interview with a expert on sea level rise, which just reminds us why the urgency is upon us. Speaking about urgency, um, look, we've had a bit of a week to absorb the impact of the election result and um, no reason really to get even more depressed or even more optimistic, if that was the possibility. Um, we got the new ministry unveiled on Monday. Um, a couple of notable inclusions. Um, the departure of Melissa Price from Environment, which I think is a bit of a hooray. Yes, I don't um, think anyone will miss by... Melissa, uh, frankly. Mel- no, that's right. No, she's replaced by um, Susan Lay, who we might remember had to stand down from the ministry beforehand because of questions about her travel expenses and who has a double S in the middle of her name because of numerology. Um, we've got a new agricultural minister, um, Bridget McKenzie, who famously or infamously shouted coal, coal, coal at the last National Party conference. And, um, of course, we have... Um, um, our dear friend, Mr. Taylor. Oh, God, I forgot his name almost, for goodness me. Angus Taylor, who is not only Minister for Lowering Energy uh, Electricity Prices, he's, uh, which he hasn't failed, has, hasn't achieved in doing yet, but um, he's also now Minister for lower, Lowering Emissions, or, or Minister for Emissions Reduction. So a formal title is Minister for Energy and Emissions Reductions. Um, David, I think it's a good idea that these two portfolios are back together. Um, pity that there isn't an, a word such as gl- climate change in there. Um, is he the right man for the job? Look, at the moment, I think we'll just have to wait and see. The evidence based on his time in the job prior to the election wasn't at all promising, and nor was it based on his previous history. Uh, I think the thing is that the federal government um, remains basically isolated from the industry. And by that, I don't just mean the gentailers and the other retailers, big and small, and the other producers, big and small but also from the regulatory side of the industry and um, uh, the, you know, the ESB, the AEMC, uh, the AER and AEMO. Uh, all of those bodies exist and have sort of tried to carve a way forward. Uh, and as I've never heard so far, Mr. Taylor mention any of them in any of his speeches, let alone the integrated systems plan. We have the um, already talk about a coal-fired plant in Queensland uh, you know, which has not come up in any plan I've ever seen except <laughs> the country party, or are we allowed to call them that, the, the national coalition in uh, in Queensland. And Queensland has the lowest electricity prices of the, of the regions and, uh, you know, some of the highest carbon emissions per capita in the world. Why they would need a, another coal-fired power plant at the site of Collinsville. I've actually been to see the old Collinsville power plant and it wasn't a great place there. Uh, now it's got a solar farm. <laughs> but 
on, on, on we it's, go. It's got a gazillion solar. It's got a gazillion solar farms around it. Absolutely. Look, it's going to be fascinating because Warren Inch has been named the um, and and he's the member um, for. Um, Somewhere in North Queensland, even further up in North Queensland, and he's he's the um, he's now been appointed the special envoy for the Barrier Reef. So it'll be interesting to hear in the discussions between himself and uh, the likes of George Christensen and Michelle Landry, who are sort of right behind this idea of this coal-fired power station. But um, anyway, well, Charles, I, we, we shouldn't be. You know, I have to say here, and I tried to point out in my article today. I'll do some more work on employment statistics to point out that mining, whilst it is very important to Australia's economy in terms of the export dollars and merchandise exports, most of which go to China. It's not that, mining by and large, is not that big an employer in Australia generally, and it's not even that big an employer in Queensland. I think we'll find the tourism industry and associated services are much bigger employers of people as far as that goes. But, uh, you know, you have to, it's not only, I mean, the, 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 the unions in Queensland, the CFMEU, it's the ALP has also got to some big, hard decisions to make. It you know, can't go around being two-faced on this issue, either at a state or a federal issue. It's got to work out what, it, what its policy actually is, and then it's got to believe that policy. It's got to get everyone, as we used to say in investment banking, on the, on the bus, you know, not to be a bloody speed hump in the road, and then they've got to get to where they're going. Absolutely. And look, Anthony Albanese is now confirmed as the next leader of the Labor Party. He was talking about trying to reach a compromise or at least some sort of bipartisan position on climate change and climate change policies. Um, I'm not too sure how you do that when their two positions are so far apart and neither of them really want to change their position and Labor has insisted that it's not going to change on the science. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really sort of at a loss to explain how that could possibly be. But Look, let's get on to our special guest, and it's a bit like the um, like Warren Inch trying to sort of advocate for the Barrier Reef while his mates are advocating for coal. One of the reasons why we actually are trying to reduce emissions is because of the impacts of climate change. And you have done a really interesting interview with John Englander, who's an expert on ocean levels, and it's really quite surprising and quite frightening in some ways what he has to say. David, tell us a bit about why you wanted to interview John. Well, you know, when we talk about climate change in Australia, Giles, uh, it's interesting to understand how we frame the question. You can either frame the question, as Tony Abbott did say, around the environment. Even then, there are two ways of thinking about it, whether we want to sell coal to India so that people in India can have electricity. That's, that's one moral way of looking at it. Another moral way of looking at it is to say that uh, climate change is a big problem and Australia has to do its part. That's the, that's the view I subscribe to. Or we can look at it as an economic issue. And when you look at it as an economic issue, you have to think about the effects on the Australian environment, uh, the effects of our dependence on China and China taking our coal were to go away over time and how we'd have to transition the economy, as well as all the uh, risks, as I said, to the Barrier Reef and everything and all the employment opportunities that renewable energy offers. So there's, it's a complicated question, but it's interesting to understand the science. John Englander has a fantastic background uh, in talking about this and is able, he, he is both a scientist uh, but also a practical scientist who's been on several expeditions to Antarctica and uh, several more expeditions to Greenland. And I've been increasingly focusing on the heat level in the ocean, which uh, the more you read about it, it is both shows that the, um, that's a better indication of the global warming in some ways than the air temperature. 
because it can be uh, measured at least as accurately and it's much steadier. And the amount of heat in the ocean is, is, the way it's growing is fantastic, but it also, it's, it's thermal inertia, as John talks about in the, in, and he, he's got some, he talks about using a glass of water and what you can learn from that, putting the heater on and turning it off. But let's hear John talk for himself. He explains it all very clearly in a way that I hope our listeners will really appreciate. And here he is now, John Englander with David Leach. Welcome to John Englander uh, today, uh, author of a popular book, High Tide and Sea Level, a noted sea level expert uh, uh, with a long background uh, in sea level rise and studying the world's oceans. How are you, John? Very well, David. Nice to be with you. And thanks very much for joining the podcast. Um, let me start by asking a question about sea level rise, which is one of those topics like climate change that people think they know something about, but then when you get into the details, you find they often just uh, probably have a headline in their mind. Can you tell us when you think about uh, uh, sea level rise and other things like flooding uh, and stormwater damage and cyclones, uh, how would you sort of... Um, uh, give a give a summary of the issue and where you think we're at right now. Sure. Um, you know, I could talk for a couple of hours on this, so we'll, we'll try and have a good intro here and then you can follow up with questions as appropriate. But uh, it, as you say, people think they know about sea level, but they tend to be confusing it with things like storms hitting the coastline or extreme high tides, sometimes in the Pacific called king tides, which are driven by the position of the planets. So I like to talk about the five forms of flooding as a framework to start. And those are storms, uh, again, in the coastal environment, heavy rainfall, which we're getting more and more rainfall, and then runoff downhill because that amplifies rainfall, extreme tides, which are totally predictable because they're based upon the position of the planets and uh, in different locations, and, uh, and then sea level rise. And the difference is that sea level is fairly slow. It's like a drip filling the bucket. And it raises the base water level and means that those other four forms of flooding, you know, will be even worse over time. But those are sudden or short-term flood events. And sea level is kind of the long-term, as I say, drip filling the bucket. Then coastal erosion, which is often confused with it as well, is really something quite different. The coastlines always erode and move. Now, sea level will make that worse a bit. But so I have five forms of flooding, which I've just gone through plus coastal erosion. So that's a, a base framework. The other thing to share with your listeners that most people don't think about is that sea level goes up and down naturally with the ice age cycles. During the roughly 100,000 year cycle of what we think of as the ice ages, when the ice sheets extend, uh, as most people know, um, sea level is gonna vary depending because the amount of ice that's locked up or water that's locked up on the ice sheets on land. And the amount is quite extraordinary. It's about 120 meters up and down every 100,000 years, roughly, between 95 and 125,000 years. So we got fooled into thinking sea level was pretty stable because we were at the end of the 20,000 year warming period when the glaciers were shrinking and sea level was rising. And by nature would have been entering the period of 80,000 years headed to the next ice age uh, maximum when uh, sea level over the next 80,000 years would have been falling and the glaciers would have been expanding and the planet would have been cooling. But of course, because of our energy usage, as you're well aware, and the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, we've changed the atmosphere. We've changed the heat character of the planet. 
and in an extraordinary way. And because of that, sea level is now rising. And the uh, this should be a very sobering thing because the last time sea level peaked, it was about seven meters above present. And that was 122,000 years ago, even without human intervention. But now... So yes. Uh, 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 yeah, sorry. Uh, 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 that's great. And so this raises a ton of questions, but let me just yeah. focus on <laughs> sea, level, sea level rise to start with. Um, yes. Uh, I guess there are two points that I want to uh, ask about. The first is the extent of it. It seems to me when I looked at the research from 10 years ago, uh, it really predicted maybe a metre by 2100. Now it seems to me that the you know, that's been brought forward about 50 years so that perhaps I think I've seen you mention in your blog, perhaps a metre by, by 2050 or 2060. And I looked at the recent data um, done by Carbon Brief, which clearly shows eight centimetres since 1990. And I think you're, you're, you're showing it as accelerating. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that's part A of the, <laughs> this short question. Yep. Yep. And part B is that we divide the sea level rise, as I understand it, between thermal expansion in the ocean and the melting of ground-based ice. Um, uh, how would we attribute the rise in sea level rise between the two? Some, a report from the CSIRO seemed to suggest that historically it's been about 50-50. Okay, great, great questions. And let's unravel that, um, all of that. So. In the last century, we've had about 18 to 20 centimeters, as you say, but the rate is accelerating now. Now, looking backward over that century, about half the rise has come from thermal expansion of seawater. That water, like most substances, even like pavement, will expand when it's warmed. And since the ocean is about uh, you know, 5,000 meters deep, it's, uh, um, it, 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 it has expanded about half the sea level rise. But in the coming decades, as the ice and as the glaciers melt, the ice on land, particularly Greenland and Antarctica, as they melt, they're going to greatly overwhelm thermal expansion. So this one good point of confusion or, or common point of confusion is that people say, well, thermal expansion is half of the sea level rise. Well, it was, but it won't be in the future because thermal expansion may account for another oh, 10 or 20 centimeters. But sea level rise, as you pointed out, can be meters. So that's, that's one point of confusion. Back to the other thing you raised, which is that, yes, about 10 or 20 years ago, people talked about a meter of sea level rise as kind of the worst case this century. But there are two things that put that into perspective. Um, when you really go back and look and, and read what the IPCC, the big uh, UN you know, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change wrote, if you read the page on sea level carefully, when they come to just under a meter this century, they leave out Antarctica and it's in the footnotes and most people don't read the footnotes and basically says we can't quantify the contribution of Antarctica. It's not that we think it'll be zero, it's just that we can't quantify the number appropriately. Now what's happened is in the last decade, um, there's been such study and uh, you know change in Antarctica that increasingly scientists are willing to say, well, we could get a meter from Antarctica. And when you add that meter onto the meter from Greenland and thermal expansion and the glaciers from Alaska to uh, uh, New Zealand and all over the world that are melting, uh, that gets us to the two meters. But these are broad numbers because the problem is 
with the ice on Antarctica and Greenland being a couple of, of kilometers high, it's, it's very difficult to predict precisely how that's going to melt. Most of all, because we don't know how we're going to make our energy, as you well know. And if we don't know our energy supply, we don't know how warm the planet will be, we can't possibly know how quickly the ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica will melt. I think this is one of the things from my work on climate change uh, is that it's really, you know, for humans, it's the first time we've done this. And everyone knows that forecasting anything is a tough business. And it's pretty inevitable that forecasters aren't going to be able to get an uncertain future that we haven't been through before uh, exactly. exactly right uh, exactly. as we go forward. Now, um, there, I, I, I'm going to want to circle back to Antarctica and then I want to bring in Greenland as well. Uh, but before I get there, you mentioned the five forms of flooding uh, that we have to worry about in the near term over the next, I guess, you know, th three to 10 years. Which of those in your guess or opinion do you see as having the more immediate impact on the world economy? Oh, okay. Good, good question. So again, if we think about what could flood any coastal area, whether it be Sydney or Miami, it doesn't re really matter. Um, it's going to be a storm. I mean, the only thing that can bring you, you know, uh, several meters of water uh, quickly is, is a storm or perhaps a tsunami, depending on what part of the world you're in. Um, although the, then the second factor is we're getting heavier rainfall. And by the way, the reason we're getting record rainfall all over the world is that the oceans evaporate more when they're warmer, which they are, and that evaporation of moisture up into the atmosphere has to come down as rain or snow. Now, what's interesting is that with a warming planet and warming ocean, you can get parched earth and drought, as you well know in Australia, uh, but it's happening in many parts of the world at the same uh, era that you're getting more rainfall, which is really hard on agriculture to have too much water or, or no water, of course. So um, that that's the, that connection, um, that record rainfall can be a real problem and runoff. Storms and strange storm patterns can be a problem in the next year. Sea level in the next year can't be a real problem because the most that any of us can figure out is that, you know, we might get a couple of centimeters and that would be catastrophic from sea level standpoint. The problem with sea level rise is again, like the drip filling the bucket, it just keeps going. And right now it's accelerating. And it's that acceleration or doubling time or exponential growth that's what will catch us, frankly, off guard. Because right now it's only about five millimeters a year as a global average. But if you double that, it takes about four or five doubles and pretty soon you're talking about visible sea level rise. That's right. And I think uh, you had a nice analogy in one of your uh, recent blog posts that uh, uh, talking about how many uh, uh, long it takes to, to, to fill a football stadium with water if you start right. with one drop, one drop and just double it every minute. And I think the answer was 47 minutes, which... Yeah. Uh, Good memory. You know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I used to do the chess growing problem all the time. I right. played chess and... Uh, it always impresses me that exponential growth. That um, without um, so let's come back to Antarctica to to an extent because I noticed that uh, or I've been read several articles that talk about the I guess undermining of the ice various ice sheets in Antarctica 
And here's where I'm an accountant or a financial analyst. I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about Antarctica, how you've seen the uh, evidence and the problem uh, and, and what's going on there uh, just in general. Sure. So Antarctica holds um, you know, about 56 meters of sea level locked up in its ice sheet. I mean, it's, it is by far uh, the biggest potential sea level source in the world. In fact, Antarctica and Greenland combined are 98%. We really just have to worry about the two of them to, to kind of scope out sea level rise. So Antarctica, again, two or three kilometers of ice on a gigantic island, actually technically a continent. Um, and we divide it into four areas to make it simple because it's this big white mass and it all seems confusing. There's East Antarctica, about 60% of the continent. Then there's West Antarctica. We'll come back to that in a second because that's the most imminent. Then there's the peninsula, that thing that looks like an appendix pointing up to South America, which is most, where most uh, visitors go. And then there's the ice shells, these thick, um, uh, looks like a shelf, a flat, a flat piece of ice in a bay that can be even um, 400 meters um, high, although 90% submerged because it's, it's floating ice like an iceberg. So the, the ice shelves are confusing and they're breaking off. Those are the things we see from Larsen and the Ross ice shelf and so on. The ice shelves are breaking up into big icebergs. But at that moment, they don't affect sea level because they're already floating ice. And like ice cubes in a glass, like an iceberg, um, that melting ice doesn't affect sea level. And that surprises people. But it's just like ice cubes in a glass. It's 10% above the surface, roughly. And as it melts, it has no effect on the level of liquid. You can run the experiment with a glass of water. Um, it's the ice on land and the glaciers. And the real problem, back to where you were focusing me, I think, is the uh, West Antarctic glaciers, there's a group we call the Pine Island glaciers. And the two prominent ones are actually Pine Island, but then the Thwaites glacier. And Thwaites is the most worrisome glacier in Antarctica and it's starting to get into the news and there are these big caverns like 300 meters tall underneath Thwaites that have now been identified where they're being eaten away underneath which leads to destabilization and Thwaites glacier holds enough ice that if it was to fully slide into the ocean and that's an oversimplification as an image of what would happen. But if it were to slide into the sea, global uh, sea level would be oh, almost a meter higher. And uh, just from that one glacier. Now it's it's that, tens of kilometers a, long. That, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big concept, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And, and so let, let's talk about Thwaites. What do we really know about it? And, you know, uh, Let's, let's be alarmist at the moment uh, for, in this, John. People expect climate change people to be alarmist. And uh, <laughs> let's, yeah. let's ring a few bells here. How likely is Thwaites to, to kind of slide, if that's the right analogy? And, and you know, if, if you were guessing, uh, at the, at, you know, assuming mm -hmm. CO2 emissions stay at least constant and probably rise for a few more years before they fall, because I think that's what we all think is really going to happen. Um, how's, how's it going to pan out there? Well, great question. So most scientists don't want to ever say something that's wrong, which would, you know, kind of hurt their careers. So they tend to say what we think 
that what they know will happen, that they can put their name on. And here's the problem. I mean, you can be driving a car and we don't know if you'll have an accident, but of course you buy insurance and you have airbags and seatbelts in case you have an accident, right? I mean, so they're just knowing something will happen and it could happen. And that's that gets to the heart of the issue about glaciers like Thwaites. It's very hard to say it will slide into the sea this century. So most scientists following their normal culture and protocol say, well, it could. The problem is if the risk is high enough, you know, that's a, that's a problem. And uh, to your question, I think from the five or six glaciers that we call the Pine Island Group, which includes Thwaites, I think there's a very good chance we're going to get at least a half meter or a meter and could be more just from that group this century. Now, many scientists are a little more cautious, but there are some real leading experts like Dr. Eric Rignot, and uh, others at NASA um, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who are in the news, in fact, um, in the last week or two, you know, saying we really have to start thinking differently because these glaciers are driven by gravity to wind up in the ocean. There's just no question about it. The, the problem is they're kilometers tall and they're moving around under uh, uh, mountains and valleys that are you know, hidden underneath the ice. And it's really hard to predict how they're going to ooze around around those mountains, if you will. Now, the more heat we put into the system, the, the softer they become, the faster they move. But to your point, I think that we're going to get, you know, at least a half meter, and it could be more than a meter of sea level rise this century. Back to your thing about the, the drops doubling and filling a soccer stadium in 47 minutes. Um, or like the grains of rice on a chessboard, as you say, um, that, uh, you, sorry, I've just lost connection, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about Thwaites and the rate of acceleration, I guess, okay. of the ice loss and the cavern building underneath, yep. I guess, uh, the undermining of the foundations is kind of my image of it. Yep. Um, absolutely true. So, yes, it, it is, again, uh, it's, it's like, a, you know, this, this river of ice moving slowly, maybe a few kilometers a year, but it's speeding up and now we have the imagery to show those caverns underneath Thwaites and the Pine Island Glacier. And it all adds to this picture that we're gonna get meters of sea level rise. It's hard to predict the exact rate. But the, the good, you know, if you were looking at avalanches, mudslides, or the next earthquake, even in a prone place like San Francisco, you can't predict exactly when those things are gonna happen. And it's the same with a gigantic glacier like Thwaites sliding into the sea. Okay, now uh, I want, I'm going to turn to uh, Greenland and your particular interest in it in, in just a second, but I want to ask one more question before we get there. And that is that you say, and I'm sure it's uh, part of well, well accepted by science, and I even think I understand the reason for it myself as a humble accountant, but that even if we stop global warming tomorrow, uh, or further warming, that in fact sea level rise would continue for uh, another half a century or so. Can you just explain uh, a, a briefly uh, why that is the case? Sure. It's a, you know, I sometimes call it a thermal inertia, you know, that a body moving or momentum, you know, doesn't stop like a ship stopping a big, a big freighter uh, takes a while because the momentum, and we've already warmed the oceans about one degree Celsius. And for that added degree Celsius, we know from geologic history that sea level will be at least 10 meters higher eventually. 
So even if we could magically stop increasing the greenhouse gases, the carbon dioxide and methane, etc., um, based upon the current temperature of the ocean, which is kind of the, the real determinant of the planet's temperature, because it takes so much energy to heat the ocean, because of that, we are going to melt ice and raise sea level for a long time. Now, the better we are at slowing the warming, which comes from the energy equation, which you're very familiar with, um, it's like taking our foot off the accelerator pe pedal of a car. The simple, uh, here's a different visual that may really help you. So if you put a big pot of water on the stove and put a chunk of ice in it, or even a bunch of ice cubes, and just let the water cool, then turn the heat on the stove and up to a high heat. And as soon as you see the ice start melting, turn the heat off. And because you put heat into the system of that pot with the water, with the ice, the ice will keep melting at a, an accelerating rate for a long time. And that's the a simple metaphor that anybody can visualize. And I think this is something we could all do at home and maybe even show our kids, uh, uh, um, or in my case, grandkids. So I probably will do that experiment at some time. Now, John, I wanted to turn, I think as, as much as the Antarctica is interesting, I, 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 I want to be bold here and say that Greenland is your uh, a special place to talk about climate change. And I understand you've been there several times. In fact, I might mention my sister, uh, who was the producer for Foreign Correspondent, a, a television show here, has actually been there herself uh, and, and made a show about it. But I mean, you're taking uh, an expedition up there and looking for some people to go. But uh, talk to me a little bit about Greenland and uh, what people on that expedition could expect to see. Oh, great. Thanks for the uh, opening. Um, and by the way, I've been to Antarctica several times as well. Uh, I've been to Greenland about a half dozen times. Um, both places are interesting. Greenland is melting much faster because the heat tends to be in the, in the northern hemisphere at this point. If you look at the temperature maps of how the planet is warming, most of the heat energy tends to wind up in the high Arctic. So Greenland is exposed to that and it's about one eighth the size of Antarctica. So it's much more prone to uh, the warming and, and melting. And um, because it's, it's uh, of all those reasons, we see the, the uh, disintegration of the glaciers up there much, much faster than Antarctica. In fact, Antarctica is just barely showing signs of, of starting to melt in effect. Uh, in Greenland, it's been accelerating since 19, in the 1980s. And um, every year I go back there, it's, it's just stunning. And because it is smaller, even though it's still a huge island, it's 2,500 kilometers north-south and uh, about 1,500 kilometers east-west. Gigantic island, again, covered by a couple of kilometers of ice, over 80% of it. Because of all that, uh, we can see the, uh, the, the collapse of the glaciers and the calving of these gigantic icebergs in, Gleaner, in Greenland even easier than in Antarctica. And uh, so I try and do a trip once a year. Sometimes it's with military leaders, sometimes it's with corporate executives. But this year, for the first time through our International Sea Level Institute, we're opening it up to members of the public that want to take a very exclusive experience. And without getting further detail, um, it'll be September 8th to 15th. And anybody that's interested, if they go to www.greenland2019, then dot john englander dot net 
So that's greenland2019.johnenglander.net. There's a page and a short video that the U.S. Coast Guard filmed when we took them up there and uh, a brochure. Anybody can find out the particulars. And, and, and so, um, you know, how bad is it in Greenland? Let's, uh, you said it's a lot worse than Antarctica, but uh, give, give, me, give me a feel for it. Well, the, um, again, at, at, at first uh, view from a satellite, they may look very similar, uh, but they're both islands uh, or continents, I guess, in Antarctica's case. So there's a similarity. But again, the, uh, because the heat is in the Arctic, we're just seeing devastating retreat of the glaciers. And some uh, scenes have been filmed now that, that shows, you know, an area the, the size of the lower two-thirds of Manhattan, New York City, that just kind of collapsed in an hour and a quarter uh, in a well-documented a film called Chasing Ice a few years ago, in 2008, actually. And that's been happening a couple of times since. Um, it is just much more dramatic than what's happening in Antarctica. Good. John, uh, I think we've put about um, 25 minutes into talking about a problem that many people spend their entire lives on. Many people spend their entire lives and careers talking about. And I know from your career, you must have a very deep love for the ocean and everything like that. Is, uh, um, is it, would you like to wrap up this little bit for me and you know tell me what you're worried about or what's on your mind the most at the moment? Sure. Um... I did start studying sea level back in college, I hate to say four or five decades ago. I was a geology major and I was also a scuba diving instructor. And um, when I worked in the Bahamas I, during, during college, I, I found what was obviously a beach, but it was now 60 or 70 meters beneath the surface. And when I went back to my geology class and talked to my professor about it, and I could see all this in the clear water of the Bahamas, uh, he said, well, that's probably when sea level was down that low. And that just fascinated me during the ice ages. And so I studied that back then, but we didn't think it would change in my lifetime. And it's only been in the last couple of decades that, you know, we've seen this kind of dramatic change in the ice sheets and temperature all from climate change. So yes, I have been studying it for a long time. I did not think it would change this quickly. Uh, back to an earlier question, David, you know, the, the Pine Island glaciers and Thwaites Glacier were predicted back in 1957, I think, by Dr. John Mercer to be the uh, canary in the coal mine for sea level rise and the ice sheets disintegrating. And I, so I neglected to say that, but it's worth adding that uh, this is not a total surprise to those who follow Antarctica, that this is exactly what was predicted in 1957 uh, by this eminent scientist, late scientist. Um, so. This is all following the pattern, and Dr. James Hansen, the noted uh, former NASA chief scientist, of course, has been one of the best climatologists in the world, warning of this, and, and not only the climate change and what's happening because of greenhouse gas emissions, but that sea level would be one of the most uh, difficult challenges for the world to cope with because we've built up our cities largely on the coast, of course. And the idea that sea level will be a couple of meters higher this century and more the next, unless we really get this under control quickly, is um, just a devastating thought that most people are either unaware of or just don't want to think about. No, so I, think that's, a, I think that's right. And, and we haven't even talked about the actual chemical impact of acidifying the ocean from carbon. That, uh, right. You know, as I said, we, we could go on for a long time on this, but I guess uh, 
you've, you've, you've done a great job, John, in, in highlighting this. And uh, uh, I can only, Do, I hope your expedition goes very, go on. Let me, yeah, let me chime in there on some things you just said about carbon. You know, there are several things that people confuse readily. And, and, and I think that was a great opportunity to clarify something. Carbon dioxide is, of course, a totally clear gas. And that is one of the dominant greenhouse gases. So is water vapor and so is methane and so on. But it's the one we control by our fossil fuel burning, of course. And carbon dioxide is this greenhouse gas that was identified in 1859 in London by uh, John Tyndall uh, and proven to be uh, a, a gas that was clear but trapped heat. And so it acted like a sheet of glass. They didn't call it the greenhouse effect back then. But the carbon dioxide is the greenhouse gas. Now. To equivalate the 30 greenhouse gases, they're often described by their carbon equivalent. Okay, but let's be clear: when carbon goes up in the air as soot, you know, which we've all seen from smokestacks, okay, that's not a greenhouse gas. And so, carbon and carbon dioxide are totally different. One's black and one's one's uh, invisible, right? And and I think it is important to help all of us talk and educate others well, that we be very clear about these terms. So the three things that are confused in the air is, is pollution, which is soot or carbon coming out black smokestack, you know, black air out of a smokestack. Now that sulfur, so, so, socks, socks and NOx emissions, I think. Right. Sulfur, that's that's yeah. right. But, th but that tends to be a cooling effect, right, on the, on the planet. The greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, is entirely different. It's clear, invisible, but traps heat. And the third thing that people confuse, since let, let's get it all out for your for your listeners, is uh, the hole in the ozone, which was treat, you know caused by the uh, chlorofluorocarbons and solved by the N Montreal Protocol of 1987, where the countries agreed to phase out these refrigerants and uh, and uh, uh, aerosols and you know and air conditioning and so on that uh, were opening the hole in the ozone layer and causing an ultraviolet problem. So those three things in the air often confuse carbon as invisible pollution, um, carbon dioxide as in a totally clear gas that traps heat like a glass in a greenhouse. The other, the other greenhouse gas, you said the socks and NOx, nitrous, uh, nitrous oxide, et cetera. And then the, uh, the efforts to, to reduce the hole in the ozone. And so I just, it's important to keep those things straight. John, I, I, I thank you again for your contribution. Um, I, I keep up the good work is, uh, is an easy thing to say. Uh, I hope your expedition to Greenland goes well. And if there are any um, listeners who, who want to get on that, I'd suggest act in a hurry. And uh, uh, look forward to chatting again at some stage in the future. Thanks again. I'd be glad to. Thanks for your work. It's very important. A pleasure to work with you. And that was John England uh, speaking with David Leach. Um, David, a fascinating discussion. And just in case people are in any doubt about how seriously um, some experts and some people take the water level, the sea level rise, I do remember going all the way back to Copenhagen in 2009 and seeing this enormous, enormous presentation by the United States, that whole, almost, well, it wasn't a marquee because we're all inside the same centre, but it was just a huge presentation. And most notable upon it was the military who gave a presentation each day. And one of their fundamental things from these, um, you know, five-star generals and whatever the equivalent with the admirals um, are, was about the threat of um, sea level rise. And they're all lifting up their army bases and their naval bases by metre just in case. And, um, and I think John England just serves to remind us just what... Um 
how quickly this can actually change. Well, I think the things you could, I also took away from it is that the increase in sea level is, is, is faster than people expected 10 years ago. Uh, it's going to continue for another 40 or 50 years if we stopped carbon emissions tomorrow, uh, unless we go to negative emissions. And, uh, uh, and it's going to accelerate. It's going to accelerate. So those are, those are three very important points to take away. The other, amongst the other things we didn't really discuss, but right at the beginning you talked about is five forms of flooding, but there's going to be a lot of storm damage. There's going to be a lot of runoff from rivers that overflow. Here in Australia, we've already seen floods this year in Queensland, and there's plenty of examples if you look around the world. Uh, of, uh, and we're going to see more of this. But anyway, um, uh, time, time yeah, will unfortunately tell. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, thank you very much for lending that interview for us, David. And um, look, I think we'll leave it there. We'll, we'll thank our sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watchers, for their ongoing continued support for this podcast. And um, I hope people enjoyed the um, change of focus this week. I think it's really important as we uh, go another three years with a coalition government just to remind us why we're um, advocating for all of this. And I do remind listeners, too, that uh, we have our Solar Insiders podcast and also our Driven, the Driven podcast from our EV Focus website. And this week, we've actually got a really interesting interview with Simon Hackett, who has one of the two first electric planes in Australia. And he talks about why they're such a good idea having a battery powering your propellers and why we may all be experiencing that when we do regional flights sometime in the future. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed, David. We'll talk again next week. Look forward to that, Charles. Cheers. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatchers.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.